Today, God's word, God's message comes in his word found in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 12 and 21 through 25. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in the scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. For to this you have been called, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Well, good morning. For the last several weeks, we have been looking at passages of Scripture that uh, use the analogy of a building or construction to talk about building a faith that lasts and a church that endures. And we're going to wrap that series up today as we prepare to begin Advent next week. And I hope you'll come back and be a part of that service. We're having a schedule change. It won't affect most of you if you already worship at 11, uh, but we are going to a unified schedule and all our grow groups will be at 930 and uh, we'll have one service at 11 o'clock as we begin our Advent series next week called The Advent Conspiracy. Hope you'll come and be a part of it. But as we conclude this series that we've called Built to Last, I thought it would be good for us to look at some of the things, some of the modern marvels of construction. I don't know if any of you have seen a picture. Maybe you've seen it on the news. Uh, This is One World Trade Center, or also it's known as the Freedom Tower. This is the building that was built to replace the the, uh, World Trade Center when it was uh, destroyed in 9-11. This building stands 1,700 
276 feet tall to its very highest point. So 1776, it stands as a symbol of, uh, of course, a reminder for us of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, but also standing as a current testimony to our nation's commitment to freedom, uh, that, that our, as a nation we wouldn't be backed down by threats of terror, but that this was a, a monument to that. It's more than just a place where people come and work. It's a building that means something. It stands for something. Now, that's a tall building. It's one of the world's tallest buildings, but it is not the world's tallest building. The world's tallest building is this one. Uh, This is the Burj Khalifa. It's in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, and it is a massive building, the world's tallest. I've actually been privileged to be inside this building twice, and I've gone up to the observation deck, and it is a surreal experience. It doesn't look real even when you're in it. You're constantly thinking this is not This is not real. That's a a view. You can see the desert literally for hundreds of miles when you're on the observation deck. When you go into the bottom to go up to the observation deck, you're actually underneath the ground level, and they've got a skylight, and you're standing there looking up, and you have to really crane your neck back. It's, It's almost as if they want the building to be this imposing figure over you. And there's a plaque there that uh, that speaks as if it's the building. And it says, I am the Burj Khalifi. I am a testimony to the progress of mankind and the indomitable spirit of humans. And, and it goes on and talks about how mankind's technology and advances in technology uh, stand as a testimony all in this building. You know, this has been part of the human desire to build uh, really for thousands of years. If you One of the seven wonders of the world that still stands today, the great pyramids and engineers and people who look at construction are they're amazed by these when you consider how many thousands of years ago people who didn't have the tools that we have or the technology that we have and yet they built these massive structures out in the desert Uh, this goes even further back than the great pyramids though if you read in the old testament in the book of genesis you find a building project that people engaged in in genesis chapter 11 verse 4 here's what the people building this building said then they said come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves of course it's the tower of babel that didn't work out so well as you read the rest of the story But the essence of what that verse says captures so much of what that plaque in the bottom of the Burj Khalifi says that that man's desire to build something, to make a monument, to to build something that outlasts him, something that will stand for generations and that people will remember. Even King David and King Solomon tried to do this. Um, the, The temple that they built in Jerusalem was a project that took multiple generations to gather the materials for and to build. And Solomon built this temple. It was one of the wonders of the world. Of course, it doesn't exist anymore, but he built this massive temple. There had never been a construction project like it on earth. It was, it was amazing. It was beautiful. It was spectacular. So he finishes it, and he's dedicating the building. And listen to what he said in Second Chronicles 2.6 as he's dedicating this building. But who is able to build a temple for him since heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him. Who then am I to build a temple for him, except as a place to burn sacrifices before him? In other words, he said, I went to all this trouble. My dad went to all this trouble. We've spent years and, and, and all this money on building this, and you come to realize it doesn't even come close to capturing the essence of 
who this God is that we worship. It can't contain him. The prophet Isaiah agreed with this when he was speaking in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1 and 2. God is speaking through Isaiah. He said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things and so they have their being? The writer in the book of Acts, Acts 17, 24, said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now think about that. Think about how humanity, uh, for centuries and centuries, even up to our time, seek to build cathedrals and temples and sanctuaries to the glory of God, to be places of worship. And God must look down on that and think, that's kind of cute. That's a nice try. Burj Khalifa, that's a nice try. Good try. But I made all this. What can you ever make to compare with me? What could you make that could contain me or hold me? There's no way that we can reach to heaven through our ingenuity, through our, through our intelligence, through all the great engineering and technological advances. We still can't build our way to heaven. And the interesting thing, thing that we learn from reading the new testament is that god never intended us to do that some of you need to know that some of you spend your life working trying to build your way into heaven only to find out you can never build enough you can never build high enough you can never build strong enough instead what we find is that it is god who is building something And he's not using brick and mortar. He's using something far more precious. He's using people. He's using men and women, boys and girls, to build something that doesn't stand just for a few centuries or millennia, but that stands the test of time. He is building a church. He's building faith in people that will endure. Maybe that's why when John, the apostle John, went to heaven, you know, John gets to go to heaven and he gets to write everything down that he sees. He makes an interesting observation in Revelation 21, 22. You can check it out later. He said when he's looking around at heaven, he realized there's no temple there. There's no church house. There's no building. And we find out when we read the Bible closely and we read the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 16. He says this, do you not know that you are God's temple? That the Spirit of God dwells inside of you. And so the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John are talking about this idea of building, but it's not building the way we want to build. It's building something that God is working on in our lives and in our church. Peter, in this passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, is comparing a principle of construction with a truth about the kind of faith that is built to last. And that principle centers around the significance of something called a cornerstone. Now, many of you probably have an idea of a cornerstone. We've got a picture. This is the cornerstone of this building. If you go out, it's in the, it's in the uh, southeast corner of the sanctuary. If you walk out these doors, you can see it there. It gives the year that the sanctuary was built, and it gives the name of the church. But, but this isn't really a cornerstone the way Peter would have talked about a cornerstone or the way Paul talked about it. This is really just a, 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 a veneer. It's just a, sort of a symbol of the building. What they're talking about is something that would have been dug out and laid in the foundation of the earth, below the earth. Actually, there's a famous painting. Those of you who love American history might recognize this painting of uh, the first president, General George Washington. And you see how the earth's kind of dug out there. He's actually laying the cornerstone for the Capitol building in that place. And the cornerstone was a literal stone that uh, the stonemason would have spent hours, if not, if not months, 
just honing it to be perfect. It had to be perfectly level. It had to be perfectly square because the whole building was going to be measured off of this cornerstone. And so George Washington, this is a picture of him laying the cornerstone of the Capitol building. For those of you who like conspiracy theories, I know some of you are out there because I get your emails. Um, in... In 1991, in 1990, and we love those emails, by the way. Cindy especially likes to get those. In 1991, um, they actually tried to excavate and find the cornerstone that George Washington laid. This is an actual picture. And guess what? They never were able to find it. Because the cornerstone is laid in the foundation. Of course, the capital's been built on with time, but they weren't able to, to find that cornerstone. Now, in today's world, we don't necessarily use a stone like that, but there's something that is still used, that architects and engineers still use as a, as a point of reference. It's called a control point, and it's something they use a lot of technology, GPS and, and satellites to exactly find this point, and it is from this control point that an entire building will be designed and built. All the walls are built off this control point, and the, in, the foundation is laid level with this control point. And so this is what Peter's talking about. He's talking about a cornerstone. And so I think there are at least three ways that Peter references here uh, that the cornerstone relates to building a faith that lasts in a church that endures. And I want to go through these three. We'll take them one at a time, but here's what they are. First of all, you have to choose the right cornerstone. That's critical. That's essential for the whole project. Second, how the cornerstone, the cornerstone is what keeps the building in alignment with itself. It makes sure that all the walls are squared and all the walls are true. And the other thing that it does, the cornerstone or the, the control point, makes sure that the building sits in proper relationship with everything else around it, all of its environment. So I want to look at each one of these three. The first one, uh, the importance of the cornerstone and how it determines the success of the entire project. That a faulty cornerstone, a cornerstone that wasn't perfectly level or wasn't perfectly square, could spell disaster for the entire building I was actually um, speaking with a friend of mine um, who is an engineer. He, he works at a firm here in town. And, and I was asking him about this because I don't know anything about any of this. I, I sounds really smart, but I'm going to give credit where it's due. I called some friends who know what they're talking about. And he was telling me about a control point, how important that still is. He was telling me of a building that he knows of uh, that they, they messed up on the control point. They didn't set the control point at the right place. And so uh, they went ahead and they laid the foundation based on this faulty control point. And they brought the steel in and they built the structure for the building. And they were building the walls and everything was going on. And then they realized that the building was out of proportion and that it was not in the proper place and they couldn't follow the plans that the architect had designed. And it was all because they had messed up the control point. They did not find the proper control point. And guess what? It was a government building, so that means you paid for that. It's so critically important that we have the right cornerstone, that we have the proper cornerstone. Listen to what Peter said in, in chapter 2, verse 4. That Jesus is a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Now Peter uses the word stone six times in this short passage of scripture. That's a significant amount of time. And there's a play on words from the original language that would be important for us to understand to get the true meaning of what Peter's talking about. See, in Greek, the word for stone is eben, E-B-E-N. That means stone. But if you drop the E, the word ben, B-E-N, means son. 
And so Peter is having a play on words that the Son, the Son of God, is this cornerstone. Now think back with me to a time when Peter was uh, walking with Jesus, one of the disciples. You remember a conversation that Jesus had. He asked all the fellows, he said, hey guys, who do people say that I am? And they were sort of speculating, giving these ideas. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the, what is it? Son of the living God. You, and Jesus' response was, that is right. And I will build my church on this rock. On this idea, this, this Aben, the Ben will be built on the Aben. So when Peter's writing this letter years later, he's remembering what Jesus said. That Jesus is going to build his church on the rock. And what is the rock? The rock is the, the declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Jesus was confronted by religious leaders standing outside the temple, you might remember this exchange. He's standing there and, and they're arguing as they normally do. And he looks at the temple and he says, you know what? You tear this temple down and I will rebuild it in three days. And boy, they got mad because they had spent generations building Herod's temple to repl- a replacement of Solomon's temple. But Jesus wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about himself. That actually, that building would be destroyed in the year 72 AD, never to be rebuilt. But Jesus was saying, you tear down this building and in three days it'll come back. Because he is the stone. He's the cornerstone on which the church is built, on which our faith is built. But he was rejected by those religious people. Look what he said in, in verse 6 through 8. Behold, God is saying, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. See, everyone is building his or her life in reference to some cornerstone. And the question that you have to ask yourself is, what is your cornerstone? You might think, well, I don't really have a cornerstone or a control point. No, you might not be able to see it. But somewhere deep, somewhere deep down inside of your heart and your soul and your thoughts and your dreams and your hopes, you have a control point. And the question is, do you know what it is? Is it your career? Maybe you've built your entire life around achieving a certain amount of success and making a name for yourself through what it is you're building, a legacy you're leaving. That's your control point. Every decision you make is made from the control point of what kind of legacy is this leaving? What kind of name am I building for myself? How much money can I amass? Maybe it's a relationship with a spouse or a child or a parent. Maybe it's a desire for approval. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's sex. What is the control point of your life? Because Peter is saying that the claims of Jesus will eventually become a stumbling block for anyone who has not built their life with him as the control point. If he is not the cornerstone, then you will trip on him, he's saying. You'll stumble over him. And so the cornerstone that you lay for the foundation of your family, of your business, of your life, of our church is critically important. And Peter wants you to make sure, make sure that you know that that cornerstone needs to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. But the cornerstone does something else. It also guarantees that the building is in proper alignment with itself, that it's in right relationship with itself, that it's squared up and that it's true. Uh, builders often start, if you've ever seen a construction site, you will uh, sometimes find that they'll build uh, a little rail, some posts that come up with boards coming out that defines the corner of the building. 
Uh, maybe you've seen this, and then they'll run strings off of that, and they measure the entire walls, all the walls from it. And, and if the building is big enough, they'll actually lay the cinder block and, and build the corner, and then they'll spend a lot of time inspecting that and checking that because they know that that has to be accurate for the rest of the walls to be in proper proportion with one another. See, the rightness of the cornerstone is reflected in the walls that extend out from it. And listen to what Peter said in verse 5. You yourselves, that's you, all of you, plural, you yourselves, all of you, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house uh, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this is, this is a big deal. He's saying that Christians are being built. Did you catch that? It's not something that will happen, future tense, you will be built. It's not something that already happened, you have been built. It's present. You are being built. God is building something in you. And and Christians are dependent on one another in order for that to happen. It's one of the reasons why at Southside we place a value on being in community, being in small groups. Because you need to be in connection with other believers in order to square yourself up with the cornerstone. I mean, let's face it, you can't always see the cornerstone, can you? It's, it's the foundation. It's something that you can't see. But as the wall is built out from it and as brick is laid upon brick, we line ourselves up with each other as we stand in relation to the cornerstone. We need each other. You can't Walk the Christian life by yourself. Christians are interdependent. Think about this. The church, this spiritual house that God has been building, been building is evidence of the truth of the gospel. 2,000 years after the claims of Jesus, stone by living stone, God has continued down through the ages to lay brick after brick. You and I stand here today on the shoulders of men and women who have gone before us, who have faithfully carried the gospel to our generation. And and we stand on their shoulders as they faithfully communicated the gospel, as they lined their lives up with the cornerstone, and then we lined our lives up with the teachings of the gospel. This is important for us. And it's important for us, Southside, as a church, to recognize what are we building How are we in alignment with one another, with the generations who've gone before and with the generations who have yet to come? It's critical. You see, in the same way that a person who is sitting on a third floor balcony cannot see the cornerstone of a building, neither can he deny that it exists. Because, see, his his ability to stay on that balcony depends that the cornerstone is there and that it is accurate. When you and I got up and came to church this morning, we didn't just come to church to go through a religious ritual or routine. We came because we're being built together into something bigger than any one of us by ourselves. And it's the cornerstones that make sure we're in alignment. Not only that we're in alignment with Christ, but that we're in alignment with each other. The need to live in community in order to, in order to test ourselves. As my life and my faith are in alignment with Jesus... They're a point of reference for other people who are coming into the community of faith. If my life is out of alignment with God's word and out of alignment with the teachings of Jesus, then it becomes a distraction and a stumbling block for others. Have you ever seen a stone mason? If they're putting the bricks, maybe they're laying the bricks down, and they have a little little hammer or or a little trowel, and they'll, they'll tap the brick. They'll knock the brick until it's perfectly in alignment with the others. Do you know when you come to church, sometimes it feels like you're being tapped. Like there are people who just kind of rub you the wrong way, right? I mean, you can admit it. 
You're in church. You're not supposed to lie anyway. There are people who annoy you. They bother you. They rub you. And listen, that's part of the design. That's part of the design because it's in that pressure. It's in that poking that we're put into better and better alignment. But if we run away every time we feel a little pressure, every time somebody taps against us or challenges us in the way we're living our life, then we fail to live in community, and by doing so, we fail to live in alignment with the cornerstone. So choosing the proper cornerstone is critical. The cornerstone uh, makes sure that the building is in proper alignment. And finally, it ensures that the appropriate relationships Uh, are had with the building and its surrounding environment. Look at what he said in verse 9 through 12. But you, church, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words... (laughs) We were just a bunch of rocks in a stone quarry somewhere. But what did God do? He went and claimed us as his own. We we were not a people. He's made us a people. And he's building us into something more than we could be on our own. He goes on and says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when you speak against, they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Do you catch the tension that exists here. What did, what did Peter just say? This is great. All of you conspiracy theorists, this is your sermon today because now we've talked about aliens in the scripture as well. What's he saying here? He's saying, listen, you are called to be aliens. You stand out from the rest of culture, but that doesn't mean you isolate yourself from them. You're called to be resident aliens. You live among the people with a life that stands as a testimony. The church stands as a witness and a testimony, and it creates a tension within us. This is why Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, you can't hide. No one takes a light and hides it under a bowl. A a town built on a hill, Jesus said, cannot be hidden. So as the church, as we are being built into this temple, it stands in stark contrast to the environment around it. But it does stand in the environment around it so that people can see and they can see what it looks like to have the gospel lived out in flesh and blood among them. That's what the church becomes. Early Christians stood out. When Peter was writing this, I mean, Christians were strange. First century Roman world thought Christians were the strangest thing that had ever happened. I mean, just listen to some of the alien practices that they had that stood out. They believed in the value of human life. They were so committed that they they opposed abortion and infanticide. When the rest of the Roman culture, it was perfectly acceptable. If you had a baby that you didn't want to keep, maybe it was a a girl and you wanted a boy, they would leave the baby literally out in the elements to, to die. Guess who it was that would go around collecting all the unwanted babies? It was the church. It was the Christians. Because they believed that life had value and life had meaning. It was the Christians who claimed that, you know what, it's, it's not okay to use people for their bodies, that, that sex is something that needs to be preserved for marriage, that, that there's something sacred about that, that that needs to be preserved for that relationship. And the rest of the Roman culture kind of scratched their head and say, what are you talking about? Have you lost your mind? The Christians were going around saying salvation is through Jesus Christ alone, that he is the way to salvation. 
Rome was a pluralistic culture. I mean, they, they were, you know, anything goes. So if you had a god or an idol that you worshipped and that worked for you, then, then that was good for you. And Christians were saying, no, it's not. If you want to be in right relationship with God, the only way to do that is through Jesus Christ. Now, you hear all of that, and we hear that, and that sounds for us in our modern ears, that sounds like a conservative worldview, doesn't it? I mean, that's something that, that a liberal worldview, Western society would look at, and they kind of mock that and stand against that. But that's not the only thing Christians believed in the first century. You see, the Christians in the first century also uh, did not believe that it was okay uh, just to go off to war to conquer people and kill people because life was valuable. And so they, they resisted all of Caesar's uh, pointless wars. They resisted the Colosseum with all the blood sport that went on there. Uh, they, they also were radically generous to the poor. Uh, they, they, would, they would give themselves away, give their property away in order for the poor to, to have what they needed. Leper colonies and, and plagues that would, out, that would break out in cities. And everybody would leave the city except the Christians. They would stay and they would care for the, for the people who were sick in the community. The Christians were committed to, to women. They saw women as valuable, as, as daughters of God who were created with worth, and they recognized that they had value. That was a, a radically liberal teaching that the church brought into first century Rome. And, and there were Romans scratching their heads saying, what are you, what are you saying? That can't be that way. That, that doesn't make any sense. And we look at that worldview today and we would say, well, that's a, that's a liberal worldview. That, that's more in line with a Western philosophy. But maybe it's out of step with Eastern religions and Eastern worldviews on the other side of the planet who don't see women as having value or, or the poor and the needy. They see the poor and the needy as people who deserve what they get. And you see, what happens here is that the church lives in the tension that all of that is true. That the gospel teaches that all of that is right. And so it doesn't matter where we as the church stand in our culture, we stand out as an example of the truth of the gospel. And conservatives can be offended and liberals can be offended and everybody's offended by the gospel. Everybody. And here's what we have, the, we have to resist the urge to do. We, we, we compromise our beliefs so that we can assimilate and fit in with one side or the other. This is why, if you look around at churches today, you will find churches in America that are liberal churches or conservative churches. Why? Because what they have done is they have compromised some portion of the gospel in order to assimilate into their culture and society. And that's easier to do. The other option that they have is they isolate themselves away from culture entirely. And they say, we'll hold to the truth of the gospel, all of it, except that part where Jesus said, go into all the world and share the gospel. Except to that part that said, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That you're to be resident aliens. We'll ignore those parts of the gospel. You see, if we're going to build our church and build our faith on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ then the cornerstone itself will put us in proper relationship with the culture and the worldview that's all around us. And we live in this tension. Don't you feel that? I mean, don't you feel it when you watch the news or you hear reports? And, and you, you think, I don't fit in any category. I don't fit in, in somebody's neat little political category because the gospel doesn't fit in a political category. Because the gospel cannot be categorized. It stands apart from culture. And Jesus said, I am building you, stone by living stone, into a, into a beautiful temple for 2,000 years that will never be destroyed. 
And that is to proclaim the message of the gospel to a world that is watching. And there are parts of culture and society that will look at things that the gospel say and they'll say, we like that. We like that the church cares for poor people. But we don't like the fact that you teach that Jesus is the only way. Or they'll say, we like the fact that you're pro-life, but, but we don't necessarily like the fact that, that you say that, uh, that, that, God, that women are also people who can be valued and have, have places of authority. See, people live in the tension of that all the time. And we can't give in to one side or the other, but we have to hold to the truth of the Scripture and what it teaches. And we can never resolve the tension, but we have to live in it. Because the minute the church makes the decision that they're no longer going to live in the tension, then they're out of alignment with the cornerstone and they're out of proper relationship with the world around them. Because both options, whether you assimilate or whether you isolate, are an attempt to avoid suffering. And that is ultimately what it means to build our life in alignment with the cornerstone. Listen to what he said in verse 21. For to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. That you line yourself up with him. In what? In his suffering. See, think about this. This is, this is huge. Okay, For those of you who are here and maybe you're not a Christian, this is so important for you to understand the truth of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came and lived in attention between two truths about God. On the one hand, you had God, a God that so loved the world that he would give his son so that everybody could come to salvation. A God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of redemption and forgiveness. And we like that God. But there's another truth about God's character that we don't always like. And that is God is also righteous and holy and God desires justice. And so we have a problem as people, don't we? That I, I, as a person, have a problem. And that I sin and I fall short. And I don't match up to the righteousness and the glory and the, and the justice of God in my own life. So what did Jesus do? Jesus came and he lived in the perfect tension of those two truths about the character of God. And he spread his arms from one side where it was grace and love and mercy to the other side where it's righteousness and holiness and justice. And he died on the cross to span the gap, to live in the tension between those two things so that you could have a faith that was built not just for Sunday mornings and not just so that you can fit in with your culture and society and not just so that church could be a place where you could come and have your personal needs met, but so that you could follow in his steps and stand as a testimony and an example of the gospel that we suffer with Jesus to display the glory of God. To say there's a different way to live. This is what God has called you to, church. This is the kind of faith that God has called you to, Christian. And it's costly. And it's not easy. But it's the only way to live in alignment with the cornerstone. Look, look at what he said in, in the next verse. First Peter chapter 4, verse, uh, I think it's verse 24. If we put it up on the screen. That he himself bore our sin in his body on that tree. Why did he do it? Look what it says next. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he says, he quotes Isaiah. He says, for by his wounds you have been healed. This is the cornerstone. 
This is the control point. This is what it means to build your life and build your faith and build your family and build your business and build your community and build his church to endure for eternity. When Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room, he gave them a symbol, a sign. He took the bread and the wine and he broke the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in what? Remembrance. He said, this wine is my blood poured out for you. Do this where? In remembrance. Do you know what he was doing? He was drawing the strings from the control point. He was saying, this is the measuring rod. This is the plumb line for you. When you take communion, that you line yourself up with the sufferings of Jesus in order to know that you're living in alignment with him. When you do this, remember, reflect. We're going to take communion here in in just a few moments. We're going to have our deacons spread out throughout the building, and we're going to invite you to come and partake of communion But as you do it, I want you to consider three questions. We're going to put them on the screen. Because this is a time for you to see, am I in alignment with the cornerstone? The first question is this, how do I identify with the suffering of Jesus? How do I identify? Do I recognize that Jesus' death on the cross was for my own brokenness and my own sin? Have I received that gift of salvation A gift that's free, but a gift that costs God the life of his son? Do I align with that? Or am I trying to avoid all suffering at all costs? Because that's what we do. We like safety. We like security. That's what we like. And Jesus says, no. Walk in my steps. To this you were called. That Christ suffered for you, that you could walk in his steps. How do I identify with the suffering of Jesus? Second question, am I in alignment with the other living stones around me? Southside, people are sitting in front of you, behind you. People were in this sanctuary at 9.30 this morning who are seeking to build their lives. And we, we stumble, we fall, we fall short, we get out of alignment, but we're seeking to build our lives in alignment with Jesus. How do you line up with that? Are you a part of that? Or are you still a stone that's off in the, in the quarry somewhere, unwilling to be brought in and made a part of this beautiful building that God is building of living stones and finally how does my faith stand in relationship to the world around me am i isolating myself away and just saying literally to hell with the rest of the world i'll just circle myself with my christian friends and get myself really busy at church and pretend like nothing else exists that's not what the gospel calls us to do or have i so assimilated myself into culture one side or the other, liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat, whatever you want to call it, have I so assimilated myself in that I don't look any different because I've, come, I've, pick, I've picked and chosen from the gospel what's convenient for me at the time. How do you stand? How does your faith stand in relationship to the rest of the world? So this morning, as you take communion, I, I, don't, I know the urge is to quickly get up and go and find somebody serving and, and take it, but I want you to think about this. I want you to let those questions Tumble around in your heart and in your mind as you consider. We're going to receive communion. Our deacons are going to come and take up the post. And when you come down to receive it, you're going to be given a a small wafer. And uh, somebody's going to tell you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. It's a plumb line. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. You take that wafer, just dip it in the cup. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. How do you line up with the cornerstone? Father, we come to you today the cornerstone that was laid for us at great cost to you. 
but freely given for us. Lord, we come recognizing, God, that in so many ways we live out of alignment. But Father, we take comfort in the fact that we are being built, Lord, that you're not done with us yet. And Lord, we are so grateful that you've reclaimed us, that you've given us life and you're building us into this this beautiful temple that you are constructing life by life, stone by stone. Father, today, as we consider the sufferings of your son Jesus, may we use that as a plumb line to measure ourselves, to bring ourselves into alignment, that we might be willing, like Jesus stood in the tensions, that we might be willing to stand in the tension as well. Lord, that we would stand as an example to a world that desperately needs to see the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus, but they also need to see that he's holy and righteous and just. We need a God who is both. May your church stand as an eternal example that you are that God. May we point people to heaven as we seek to build a faith that lasts and a church that endures. In Jesus' name. Amen.